Hello and welcome to the DMBA podcast where we share business confidence with the design community. With me are Franz and Tom. Hey Franz, hey, hey Tom. Hey gang, good to be back. Yeah, nice to have you back Tom. Um, so today we will do another business design teardown, which is a format where we take a brand or a product uh, that designers generally like and we look at the business behind that product and we want to see if uh, this is just a fancy design product or service or is it also fancy business as well but first before we go into today's company we have a huge big announcement uh maybe franz what is i'll hand it to you like what is the announcement about we are launching an agency yay <laughs> so when I say we, it is the DMBA who launches an agency. So um, yeah, what's the story behind it? We've um, we started with the DMBA like five years ago, and that was the DMBA program. And we have we had over six hundred designers. Actually, I just looked it up. It was six hundred and sixty designers from around the globe doing this program, gaining business confidence, and really. Yeah, being able to use these tools in their work. But yeah, we still get a lot of questions around business that go beyond things that we can answer in our alumni Slack. So we get questions from alumni and also subscribers saying, hey, I have troubles with these numbers on this project. So can you help me create a business case? Or can you help me test this big strategic decision? Or can you support me... Um, with business research and until now we have always said no to this question because we were focused on the DMBA as a program but now um, we can say yes to this to these questions because we have launched a business design agency which is called rule 72 exactly mm. and that's not a full stack design agency oh, we do business design and we do branding and we do everything else we only do business design and we tend to love everything that generally uh, traditional designers of other disciplines dislike which is crunching numbers doing business research uh, designing business models I mean you can see it also from the podcast and what kind of things we, we discuss here um, so yeah if your team or you are looking for some business design help uh, you can learn more about the agency and how we work and what we offer if you just head over to d.mba slash agency. Exactly. Very exciting news, chaps. Congratulations. Um, I'm curious. Rule 72, the name. What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question because we've been looking for a name for a few months. And like generally, we just call this whole project like business design agency for a very long time. And then Franz and I were in a meeting and we were just pressured to come up with a name. And... We remember that, okay, so we love to do math and we love to do business. Is there something that's in, the, in this intersection of these two worlds that seems like a nice name? And then I remember that there's this really cool mathematical trick called, actually, it's called rule of 72. And it means that if you're trying to figure out when a certain growth will double, mm. you just need to divide this with 72. For example, let's say you have invested um, in stock market and you know that it's growing on average 7% a year. You divide 72 with 7 and you know in 10 years, 7% growth will double. 
or maybe let's say your company is growing at 35% a year, this means that it will double in just two years. So, you know, taking the growth and dividing with 7.2 gives you when something will double. And doubling is all about, it's, it's basically what a lot of business people think business is about. Right. Cool. Cool. So, I, I mean, I should have known it'd have something to do with maths with Alan involved. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I think it should also, or the reason why we loved it so much is that it also reflects a little bit of our, how we go about things. So business and math, it always seems like super mm. accurate, but we know that mm. there is a lot of logic and there is a lot of approximation. And it's also more about um, design approach to these things. And this is why this name and this rule really defines well or also connects well with how we work, which is a pragmatic, well-founded way to get to a goal which are without overthinking and overdoing stuff. Cool. Exciting stuff. Can people find out more about this at the moment? Is there somewhere to direct them to? Yeah, a couple of things. So one is rule72.design. Uh, that's one URL. And basically this URL takes you, takes you to dealer10ba slash agency. So either exactly. of these two links takes you to the same page and then you can read more about it and also reach out to us. Cool. So if you'll need any help, Tom, you know where to find oh, us. Oh, yeah. Go and, go and check it out. It's very exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, nice to start the podcast with cool. a big, exciting announcement. So, yeah. But now let's go to today's topic. <laughs> hmm? Indeed. So which company will we <clears throat> talk about today, Tom? Well, this company, um, have to have to confess, not so well known, I don't think, in in UK, perhaps not even in Europe. One that um, came onto my radar doing the DMBA, actually. Um, really fascinating, kind of known as one of the sort of godfathers of direct-to-consumer, which we are definitely going to get into. Um, was once dubbed the Netflix of eyewear, which I think if you are dubbed the Netflix of anything, you're probably doing something right or creating a bit of a stir. Uh, and that company is Warby Parker. Um, big US-based um, eyewear, glasses, contact lenses company that really um, came onto the scene, shook up the market by offering um, very high-quality designer-style frames and lenses for a fraction of the cost. This is a market which we will discuss has been monopolized for a very long time, particularly in design. Um, and Warby Parker were like, there's got to be a better way. One of the founders, I think, had broken a pair of their $600 glasses and were like squinting their way through their lectures at university and were like, there's got to be a better way than this. Uh, <laughs> and ultimately went on to create Warby Parker. Um, so you know what, at what school were these lectures at? If I'm not mistaken, they so they were actually taking an MBA course. Yes, they were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they were learning about business and they were like, there's something wrong here. Absolutely. Yeah, what a way to put those skills together. Um, so yeah, founded in 2010 in Philadelphia by Neil Blumenthal, Andrew Hunt, David uh, Gilbauer, and Jeffrey Rader. Um, Neil and David are the two current co-CEOs. Um, and yeah, like we said before, Warby Parker entered the market. This was a really expensive oh. arena, um, heavily monopolized. You know, if you want to design a frame, you're looking at three, four, five, six hundred dollars plus. Um, and they really wanted to bring something new to the market that could democratize that, make it more affordable, but also make the process of purchasing those uh, more accessible, 
and less intimidating. So really, we're the first people to do the whole try before you buy thing. People would look online, find five frames they liked, they'd be posting out to them, give them a go, try them on for a bit and send back. That has now become a very common model with a lot of products that you wouldn't expect, things like mattresses and luggage and things like that. And the irony is that Warby Parker were originally the, the Netflix of eyewear. We now talk about, use this phrase, the Warby Parker of, right? Companies that have come in and disrupted a monopolized product market, um, particularly one where you might have been restrictive of how you could buy it or try it out uh, and just blown that apart. So yeah, from, from the Netflix of uh, eyeglasses to everything being the Warby Parker of, it's quite a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, probably worth us starting to maybe touch on a bit of bit more about the, the business model. I've talked a little bit about kind of pricing um, and kind of the direct to consumer piece, but I think Franz, you're gonna take us there. Then we're gonna have our short little palette cleanser, a little quiz, a few little questions. I get the feeling some of the guys might already have a clue on some of those. Um, and then Alan's gonna take us into, into the numbers as always. Um, I should note, Not that this really matters. Anyone watching this podcast, if I look like I'm in the dark, it's because I am. My lights are broken. I'm having a lighting nightmare (laughs) today that's put me right off my flow. I just wanted to acknowledge that I'm not just in a cave. Um, So, yeah, Franz, do you want to take us into business model land and brand and positioning world? Maybe first, I just want to share a story of... uh Warby Parker, like, I mean, I think I'm the only guy, yeah, I'm the only person wearing glasses here. Since I live in Europe, I am not wearing Warby Parker, but I just wanted to share um, how I got to learn about Warby Parker. I think it's an interesting story. So I am one of those people who had to spend $600 on glasses. So I it, I directly felt the, the, the pain of this, but I didn't really go deep into understanding why this is happening in industry and so on. But um, when the Warby Parker kind of showed that this is an interesting path, then similar companies opened up also in Europe. And one of them is called Ace and Tate. Mm. So when I moved to Munich, that's where I learned about Ace and Tate. And um, I saw that, you know, for a third of the price, I can get prescription glasses. Instead of going to the doctor and all this lengthy process, I just go there, just, just order it home, these five glasses, try them on, and basically see if this is gonna be a good fit. And I've been wearing these uh, prescription glasses from Ace and Tate for the last what seven eight years, wow. um, and even more impressively. So uh, there's two more stories to this. One is um, I found when I get excited about it, then I talk about certain topic with everyone, and I share this story with my my wife's sister, and she also wears glasses. So when she visited us in Munich, she actually went to Ace and Tate, and they at that time already had this, a store. And um, she decided to pay the additional fee, which was just 20 bucks. So you get your glasses in the same day. Mm. So she went back home with the glasses, prescription glasses for 120 bucks. And she gets home and she basically, she was super happy about it. And she told her parents that, hey, I got these prescription glasses for just 120 and they look great and they're amazing. But you know what their response was? This can't be good. (laughs) so then i had to go back and kind of explain why this makes sense and probably everything we'll talk about today like why this price still makes sense and so on 
So that's another story. And there's a third one, but I'm going to stop here. So it's just like, it's an interesting, um, pretty interesting story that's a big part of almost anyone who wears glasses has seen or heard of a certain type of or variation of Warby Parker. If you, even if you don't live in the US, there's now copycats all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there's there's Nathan Tate in Brighton, which is the only other one I could kind of think of that was, was uh, similar. But I'm, I'm not an eyeglasses wearer yet. I'm sure I'll get there. Uh, neither is Franz <laughs> by the look of things. Unless you're wearing contacts, Franz. Are you a contacts guy? I'm not. No. But I'm wearing sand, sunglasses. Yeah. You're not at the moment. <laughs> I'm not at the moment. Um, it's actually a pair of Ray-Bans that I bought a few years back for, Ooh. I think, 130 euros. Really? And I lost oh. them two weeks ago. Oh, no. Got two it. weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, Really? That's, that's a great, great, great timing. <laughs> you need to get yourself great some of that timing, ace and tape so gear going. Um, research, yeah. research purchase. Yeah. We're also getting back to Ray-Ban in a second. Okay. Because that is, um, yeah, a data point that I guess a lot of the listeners will find interesting. Mm. Uh, but now let's go into um, business model and strategy. I mean, just in general, um, Warby Parker Warby Parker is known for premium eyewear at affordable prices, right? So while on average for other companies, people spend around 600, 400 to 600 bucks on a pair of glasses. Um, and now I'm talking about prescription glasses. Um, in Warby Parker, it's more, yeah, 200, I think, or even Hundreds. lower. I mean, for prescriptions, yeah, it can even be 100. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So that's the whole thing, right? You have a product that feels like a designer frame, but it does not cost what one would expect a designer frame to cost. So if we really boil it down, it is price being the, uh, the USP while having still a quality that is, um, yeah, basically suggesting something that's, that should be more expensive than this price. And products, as we also said, prescription glasses, sunglasses, and also they opened uh, contact lenses. So they do have contact lenses as well. Yeah. So they went into eyewear. Eyewear, interesting market. And I say this with, with a wink because it's really not an interesting market, right? It's glasses. And the thing is, the the reason or the friends. way <laughs> I mean also to me but also how how exciting is it to you I think like there are people who wear just glasses, love right? their I mean there's sunglasses and there's glasses I yeah. think sunglasses well, I think both have become exciting to wear I mean you if you think five maybe even ten years ago um, there was a certain inflection point where people started wearing glasses like regular transparent glasses without mm. having a prescription without having like any eyesight issues and that was just because of uh, fashion statement so yeah. i think it got exciting and they made so these companies we'll talk about today one of them being Warby parker they made eyewear exciting yeah yeah i have an issue you. with the word exciting <laughs> because it's i mean obviously fashion is exciting but in the end, it's, yeah, it's glasses. It's a practical purchase, isn't it? You know, it's, it's um, yeah. I can understand where it, maybe it doesn't evoke the same emotional response as an ice and suit or something, but. 
is and also from the complexity level so yeah interesting thing i mean you, where are you going to disrupt with glasses that's where i'm trying to mm. lead right it's fashion it's works but it, there is not a lot of complexity when we look back to sonos from last mm. week right you they disrupted with uh, technology being completely different mm -hmm. so where are you going to disrupt a market that sells glasses that have been around for ages, right? So yeah, glasses, thousands of years. There is not just there. There is not much to disrupt from a product perspective, right? Uh, obviously, ignoring now uh, Vision Pro, um, the thing <laughs> that we have all seen in the last few weeks. But yeah, now we're talking about sunglasses, prescription glasses. There is not a lot of margin for disruption when you only think about the physical product, right? Um, And to really understand how Warby Parker managed to actually, yeah, really disrupt a market is by also understanding how the market, when they launched, looked like. So Tom, you already said they launched their uh, company in 2010 as part of this business school program, like venture mm -hmm. initiation program or something. Um, and at this point in time, the market for glasses, sunglasses, prescription glasses was dominated by basically one company. This one company is called Luxottica. Um, and I mean, do we now all know? So I'm just thinking about asking you this question. I know that Alan knows it, um, but Tom, do you also remember from the program, uh, the MBA program, how much uh, market share they have? It might have shifted by right. now, but... Um I've seen figures that show in the US at least it was something like 60% share, yeah. which is wild. <laughs> exactly. So when in 2010, they had 58% market share of this um, eyewear market. Mm. And that is wild, right? So this company was started in 1961. And they became this huge dominator of the eyewear market by some very smart moves. So first, they have proprietary brands. So I just mentioned I lost my Ray-Ban, Luxottica. Oakley, Luxottica. Parasol, Luxottica. So all of these brands are owned by Luxottica, proprietary brands. Then the next move that they did is licensing luxury brands. Prada, Chanel, Dolce & Gabbana, um, Versace, Burberry, Love, Ralph Lauren, all these glasses are actually made by Luxottica. One company. One company. And on top of that, everybody knows you can buy these brands that I just mentioned in every single retail store. What they also have is their own retail chain. So they also own their own retail. So this is almost like this is monopolistic position close to monopolistic position so this business model of having almost a monopolistic position licensing these big brand names um, which costs obviously a lot of money if you want to use versace's name and put it on a, a, your glasses that's gonna cost something right um, also retail placement selling everything through retail and having usual markups in glasses is about three to five x for the frames uh, from the wholesale price this led to these like crazy prices right so a combination of this monopolistic market of this licensing and of this retail and 
here is where Warby Parker started, right? Not innovating with product itself, but innovating with the business model or more uh, closely with their strategy and how they approach the um, value chain. So what they're doing is they have in-house designers design all their glasses themselves. They work directly with manufacturers for both the material and the assembly. They have their own brand. Warby Parker is their brand. They don't license anything. Um, and they sell direct to consumers. And all of that um, made it possible that you have glasses that work. Say hi to your parents-in-law, Alan. So <laughs> they have glasses that work. That work. Because <laughs> they, may so, yes, have, they, <laughs> they may have used a different word. So I don't want to put this in. Yeah. <laughs> okay, they are good even though they are cheap. Yes, right? yes. Because you can... Um, yeah, just do business differently than it was done until then in this market of eyewear. Because how this business was run with a company that owned like 60% of the whole market um, was in a way that you had very healthy margins compared with um, yeah some business decisions that helped them grow, but also were high on cost, like the licensing of brand or uh, going through retails, retails. So as a result, we have this um, in-house design own man or direct manufacturing partners direct to consumers which is this Warby Parker model that you Tom mentioned right and now you have the Mar Warby Parker of luggage of mattresses of strollers of we might even say um, like athleisure right <laughs> yeah we, we touched <laughs> so, on that a couple of episodes ago didn't we I mean maybe not because Lululemon was founded before but yeah but yeah, it's a, it's a similar model, mm. right? You're shortcutting or you're cutting out people or, um, or um, positions in the value chain. You're trying to go direct to consumer. Uh, and through this, you have bigger um, control. You have direct or more closer relation to your consumers. And you usually also have constant savings that you can pass on to either have more healthier margins or um, go for adoption through lower prices. And that was basically this, let's say, step one to even have a right to exist in such a market that was dominated by one player so so heavily. Mm. Will you also talk about the actual cost of producing glasses and lenses? If not, I have a short story. Yeah, um, share it. I just remember when I actually were deciding where to buy my first Warby Parkers, so Ace and Tates, I was like, ah, can it be any good? Just like my parents-in-law. So, um, and I looked up online how much it actually costs. And both of these things, so frames and lenses itself together, on average, don't cost more than 10 to $15. And then to I was like- make. Yeah, to make, yeah, production cost. I was like, oh, okay. So why was I paying three, four, five, six hundred until now? Yeah, it's because of a different business model. Mm. And that's at the designer end of the market. I saw similar kind of figures that were kind of half of that for, you know, if you were not so worried about materials or design, mm. you know, you can, it really does make you think about the, the ethics of a business model where you are charging hundreds, thousands times markup um but that's that's how monopolies can can uh yes. thrive right um yeah and interestingly your parents 
anchoring and you know, your sorry your in-laws um, anchoring to the to the price they were used to to paying and saying wow how can you have good quality for $120 um, <laughs> the the founders I saw a story they shared where they were putting together their original pitch deck to investors and they went in had it all worked out um, and we're saying that we're going to disrupt this market and we are going to sell direct to consumer designer high quality glasses and lenses for $45 and the investor just pushed the deck back and was like no way no one is going to believe for a second that you can have that kind of quality at that kind of price so they end up anchoring to a more reasonable you know nearly three figures because people would just wouldn't believe it. it's too good to be true but to your point alan you'd still be you know 50 percent markup if you were selling at that at that level but the business wouldn't have been as, as successful because we all anchor to at the moment or historically had anchor to that higher price so interesting the kind of psychology of pricing as well and positioning so they ended up doubling um the starting retail price um based on that advice that was a good choice it just reminds me of another tool that um, have you two heard of uh, Van Vestendorp price sensitivity meter? No. You did France, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I know price sensitivity, but I didn't hear about the price sensitivity meter. Well, basically, Van Vestendorp is just a way to figure out what is a good price for your product. And it's super simple. You do a pitch of a hypothetical product to consumers and you explain the benefits, the features, and then you ask them four questions. So mm -hmm. the first question is, at what price would you consider the product to be so expensive that you would not consider buying it? In other words, too expensive. Then it's, at what price would you consider the product to be priced so low that you would feel the quality couldn't be very good, too cheap, which in our case is then $45 or $54 for Parkers. Then the third question is, at what price would you consider the product starting to get expensive so that it is not out of the question, but you would have to give some thought to buying it, which is expensive on the high side. And then the fourth question is, at what price would you consider the product to be a bargain, a great buy for the money? So this gives you basically like a, like a frame in which you want to think about the, the product or the price of your product or service. Even though we've seen examples of companies going you know, out of this parameter and still being successful. Yep. Hello, Apple. Uh, but most of the brands can do this. Mm. So you do need to kind of think through that. Mm. Interesting. Franz, anything else on the sort of business model, brand positioning? Oh, of, course. of course, I know what's coming. <laughs> I hope we're going to play a game. So... Um, we are not going to play a game. I do have a question, though. Mm. You know that Warby Parker started out to be an uh, online sales place for glasses. In 2010-11, when they started, what percentage of glasses were sold online? 1%. easy. <laughs> you read it. <laughs> Okay, yeah, at this point in time, 1% of all glass sales, glasses or sales of glasses was done online. So, yes, you have a great new um, business model and um, value chain. Problem is, somebody needs to buy your stuff 
because you're not gonna uh, open source because again this direct to consumer sales um, online is one part of making this even possible having this low price so how do you make this happen and you already said it tom right they were the one of the first ones to do this try at home um, or home try on offer so from the very beginning you were it was possible to sell, select up to five frames try them on for five days for free of charge free shipping label for sending it back um, and this means that for something that you would usually do in store only having a retail experience you could now do at home i know that this now sounds like a no-brainer but that again that was 2010 11 mm -hmm. right so shipping was not as let's say commonly used as now if you get something shipped then you got it so this return for free is also not something that was too common so that was a very important move to basically get off the company get the company off the ground right and an interesting thing and i don't know about this because again i'm not wearing glasses but how do you feel about trying something on in a store do you like it i mean with glasses it's like you're gonna have this on your face all the time so yeah. i actually really appreciated the moment where i could have them on for a week and try them on in different like even different outfits like i tried them on on two different days it would give me this confidence of hey this is a good choice so in a way it was even better than in the store exactly that's what i felt too because i like for me trying something on in a store is always like a stressful experience mm -hmm. to be honest so what's my mood who is watching <laughs> like what's the light i i mean obviously it's nicer to do this in your environment where you are the only but the only one who can like who just focuses on that uh, maybe you have another person's opinion who might not have been there in the store so yeah that was an interesting not only an interesting thing not only recreating an in-store experience but actually upgrading an in-store experience you might not have this professional seller selling telling you well this maybe doesn't sit perfectly but at least you got the upgrade of you have your time there is no stress nobody's waiting in line behind you um yeah you can try it out with different outfits uh, so i think it's even better than um in-store try yeah same like if i get to the stage of needing glasses which probably will um yeah i would much prefer that like pushy sales people that kind of stuff i'm like eh, not for me um and I don't know, I, I've, I've been to opticians with other people when they're trying on glasses. It doesn't typically feel like this nice boutique experience where you might be happy to pay orders of magnitude more for. It's usually pretty clinical. You've got the budget stuff, media range and, and sort of designer. I, I'm sure you can go to places where it's all very high end. But yeah, I don't feel like you, you get that element from it. Um, although I'm sure we'll move on to Warby Parker's sort of physical scores, um, stores pace. Um, and to, to your point, Franz, about, yeah, maybe it's not going to fit perfectly. But one of the, the things that I really liked um, about what Warby Parker offer um, is they give you credits to go and get your glasses adjusted by a professional. I think it's up to like $50 or something. So you can take the ones you've bought 
and get them tweaked by someone at an opticians and they'll refund you for that don't know if that's something that ace and tate also, also do but it's pretty cool yeah i did have this experience so when i bought my first pair there was no store in munich so i went to one of their partner stores and i just told them yeah i bought it at ace and tate and i actually went in a couple of times and basically i think they charged it to to the parent company i didn't ask but it was a nice experience mm. cool another one getting the company off the ground so warby parker is targeting i mean they were founded by university students they were also targeting let's say younger people more price sensitive but still fashionable people um, and luckily this young mind also went into how the companies run and when i say this i mean um, social responsibility and dedication of the company to um, values beyond business so from the very start what they have implemented is a buy a pair give a pair policy have you heard about this one mm -hmm. so for every pair they sell they donate a pair to someone in need but what i found interesting in this model is that they don't just give it away but they partner up with non-profit organizations who train people in developing countries to conduct basic eye exams and then sell these exact glasses at an affordable price to their communities so it's basically not only giving away um glasses but it's also creating jobs and until 2022 i think i've read 13 million 13 million pairs that's very cool yeah yeah so not only given away but actually sold for affordable affordable prices through these local i would say business people now in this case it reminds me of the the shoes i think it's called tom's mm. They have the same, mm -hmm. like, buy one. One for one. Yeah, one for one. Yeah, true. Yeah, and they are B Corp certified. So, again, um, early on decision of what company they want to be, which is part of the strategy, right? So, we are still talking about strategic decisions. It's not something that you have to do. You can also say as a company, well, that's not the time for this. First, we need to earn some money and then we can think about these nice other things, planet, people, and so on. No, you can make this a strategic decision from the very start. Um, last one. I have one more. A big strategic move for a company like Wallaby Parker was... Opening stores. True. And... Again, I'm not gonna, I cannot surprise anybody from you because you likely already know what percentage of um, revenue they're now making in source. Does anybody not know from the two of you? I don't. I, I haven't got you that don't? to hand, unfortunately, Franz. Ah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Are you lying? Maybe okay. I, mean, I have a sense for it, but I'm not sure about exact numbers. Okay. So 2010, they have started um, selling glasses online only. Now they have... No, I'm not going to tell you how many stores. I'll tell you later. But now they're having a bunch of stores and they are selling also offline. What is the percentage of offline sales? Hmm. 40%. Oh, I was going to go 40. I told Franz half nodding there. Yeah, 
41 and a half. <laughs> 90. Wow. 9-0. Yeah. That's incredible. 90%. Yeah, that's what I read. Wow. I heard that they had parity in like 2017, 18. And now they are at 90% offline. Wow. Okay. Warby yeah. Parker off. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Warby Parker off luggage. Have yeah. you off already opened some stores? Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, well, the, yeah, the irony, they right? are running 200 stores in the US and in Canada. And you got to extend here because what they have done really, really well is combining online and offline experience. Mm. So initially, it was more like for brand visibility and customer relationship. But what they have done now is having this full experience that combines offline and online. So first one, in every store, there is a full range of products. So you can try out everything also in a store. You can click and collect to a store. You can get your glasses adjusted in these stores. You can reserve your um, glasses and try them out there. Um, and they're also quite big in or also quite smart with where they open the stores because they used current customer data mm. um, in order to determine the locations of stores. Mm. Now... Do these stores work? In what way? Um, yeah, I mean, profitability-wise, you will tell us more, I yes. guess. But <laughs> one thing I was wondering is, how good can a store work like this? Like, it's only glasses. And how, like, what does this, how does this work? So in the end, um, I also tried to find out, like, how, how successful are the stores when, it, are the stores when it comes to sales? they kind of need to be successful because they are making 90% offline now. And they say that they have $2,900 of um, sales per square foot annually, which doesn't say a lot, right? Because it's just a number. But just to compare that, Apple has the highest square foot sales, which is 5,600. 5,546. <laughs> to be exact and Tiffany and Co like Tiffany you know mm. luxury brand 3,000 so luxury brand has 3,000 um, dollars per square meter a uh, square foot and Warby Parker goes with 2,900 also with a smart store design right everything looks like a bookshelf stores are kind of small everything looks like a boutique mm. library um, combined yeah. with a huge billboard um, and yeah, apparently, um, one of the highest, um, or best selling, um, best selling stores when you compare revenue per square foot. And, um, just to put this in context, I found the same data. So I have some more stuff on this. It's like to put, let's say you have a thousand square feet place, or that's roughly 100 square meters. This is basically $3 million per year per store. Yeah, that's pretty good. And just to give you another example, like how, what is the sales per square foot annually in Walmart? It's $500. Mm. And Lululemon, 
Tom. Our favourite. Lululemon. Yes. Take, take a guess. Ooh, let me think. Hmm. 1,500. That's a very good guess. It's 1,560. Oh, it's only 60 off. It's almost as if you work for the <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah no, that's, those are in very impressive numbers. And I was... Um, I, they've been on a big expansion piece, right? Like last thing I saw was like from three months ago and they were hoping to have a 240 stores open. Um, and they were saying that they're sort of, uh, the rate at which they pay back their costs of refurbishment and rent and whatnot is like 20 months. And apparently that's a very fast cycle compared to um, the standard kind of cycle that people go through. So worth the investment. Um, and... Yeah, considering I've, I've got a stat here that on average will be Parker customers um, complete an, one order per year and buy an average of one and a half units. So you can imagine that maybe once you've done the in-store experience, you might be more confident online or vice versa. Uh, and as I understand it, they tend to treat online and in-store purchases as this, you know, they don't prioritize one or the other because they understand that most of the marketing work might have happened online. Someone just happens to go in store to, to tweak it or something. So they still have parity there, but those 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 figures, that 90% is pretty compelling. Um, but probably doesn't, but like you say, France doesn't paint the whole picture as far as, yeah, um, online and direct to consumer is still a big driver of probably a lot of those sales. Yeah. I mean, what's definitely not true is that they could shut down their that's online it, activities, right? right? Yeah. A lot of that's, yeah. But it was still super, like, impressive to me to see that a fully online company has now 90% offline mm. sales. Mm. Um, and I was just, that, that's why I dug so deep into these um, square foot mm. um, square foot revenues because stores are always, stores are mostly bad right and when you're a walmart and you're just like you have huge store um you need huge stores in order to sell low volume products that's the worst but in this case when you think about it you can have a lot of glasses into a, in a very small um mm. store when you stack it like in a bookshelf right mm. so you're not having you're not in need of a very big store um so even this speaks for this um, offline expansion. You know, even before I dug into these numbers, uh, I always had a feeling that this is a great business. Why? If you go into any city in the world, these, uh, how are they called, opticians mm. or yeah. eyewear stores, whatever, they usually have really huge space and very minimal, minimal, like, like, you know, if you go into an apparel store, like there is just t-shirts and trousers everywhere. Like you basically need to walk through, through different aisles to get to where you want to go. And these, and these stores with glasses, they're like clean design, just, you know, some glasses on the sides. There's a lot of space. It just gives you a feeling of like, ah, they can afford a big, much bigger store than what they would need. Um, so that's one thing when I see like this discrepancy in like what space you need for actually holding your itinerary and um, and and how little itinerary you have in the store. That's one telling sign. And then another is like for how long these stores are surviving in their locations. 
that's another like sign of longevity and a good good industry with healthy margins or maybe maybe even maybe even like two healthy margins <laughs> but that's another another side of the story hey we could talk about um margins and numbers later because you know usually what i would do now is i would go into competition talk about strategic groups and talk about market shares and so on i started but then realized it doesn't make sense because we have i mean now 39 but yeah we basically only have luxotica who has now um merged with another company mm -hmm. which name i forgot elixir yeah. luxotica so they own everything right so there is no <laughs> there is no in this industry there is no need to go into competitor groups so that's it for business models <laughs> Yeah, no one seems to be no one seems to be doing it at the scale of um, Warby Parker that that model yet, right? Ace and Tate, uh, and there's a few in the UK. I, I haven't come across any that are starting to do the same that's happened in luggage and mattresses. Like, there's so many direct to consumer sort of mattress offerings now that are considerable, a uh, kind of comparable scale, but. Um, yeah same and then that acquisition was was lenses i think it was a lenses manufacturer so now they're getting even more vertically integrated um luxotica so not going away anywhere i'm um, very surprised that they haven't been caught up in any kind of legislation issues with like monopolies and whatnot but that's because this market can be sliced in so many different yeah. ways there's like eyewear industry And then there is a prescription market industry. Then there is sunglasses industry. So you can make the case, mm. different cases. And that's why it's hard to prove it's a monopoly. Mm, for sure. Um, are we ready for some numbers? But f and but first, a bit, of a, a bit of a palate cleanser, a bit of a, bit yeah. of a quiz. It's I was looking forward to that. Short one, short one. So, um, okay, quick Warby Parker quiz. So question one. Warby Parker's name was inspired by characters from the work of which literary figure? Was it A, and I always pronounce this wrong, Jack Kerouac, B, F. Scott Fitzgerald, C, Harper Lee, or D, Ernest Hemingway? I know the answer, so I'll let Franz guess. I, I read it in for <laughs> Alan then. You can try and uh, pronounce it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to just say A. A, Jack Kerouac. Funnily yes. enough, yeah, I did look up the pronunciation of the name. So it is a tricky it's one. A it's a trickier one. Kerouac. Kerouac. Um, so, yeah, it's a combination of the names of two characters um, from a Jack Kerouac journal that the founders spotted when there was a Jack Kerouac um, exhibition at the New York Public Library uh, in 2009. So it was Warby Pepper and Zag Parker. Uh, and apparently new starters at Warby Parker get a copy of Jack Kerouac's The Dharma Bums. Don't know if either of you read that uh, on their first day. So there we go. When I read that, I felt that if we just use the other part of these two characters' names, it would be also fun. <laughs> it would. Pepper Zag. Pepper Zag. <laughs> It's probably some like food brand. <laughs> yeah, damn. They also launched um, uh, Warby Barker once i don't know if you saw that it was no. a like april fools ish sort of tongue-in-cheek thing they put out their um annual report one year and checked 
the sort of SEO on it. And apparently um, one in three of like spelling mistakes or something where people were spelling it Warby Barker rather than Warby Parker. So mm-hmm. like, oh, we can have a bit of fun with this. So I think for like a week they launched uh, a website where you could buy glasses for dogs and they had like a promo video and everything like that. The website's still live. It looks very old now, but um, yeah, quite a cute little uh, campaign. I got to Yeah. Um, okay, well done, Alan. One nil. Um, question two: Which late night US TV host of Warby Parker collaborated collaborated with twice, launching the limited edition Flippies and Spinnies models, which I'll tell you about once you've answered the question. So, A. Seth Meyers, B. Jimmy Fallon, C. Trevor Noah, or D. David Letterman. I'm going to go with D because I think David wears glasses, but I'm not sh- I'm not sure about okay. A and C. I've never heard of them. France? C. C, Trevor Noah. No, you're both wrong. It's Jimmy Fallon. Um, yes. So they're quite fun. And uh, they do actually sell these and the profit, the proceeds will go to charity. So the flippies is a pair of sunglasses that the, um, the arms can go both ways. So on one side, you've got like a nice classy black frame and then when you flip them over they got a like bright blue warby parker brand color frame that's quite nice um and then i'm not a glasses wearer but i've done this with my sunglasses the other ones are spinnies so apparently some people and i definitely do this you know when they're this is what for the youtube people like i'm spinning my sunglasses do this <laughs> with their frame and you can end up throwing them off or you know damaging them or something so they have a little like bearing in the in the arm and you can just spin spin the glasses as a little fidget spinner very expensive one <laughs> so millennial yeah so that's yeah both both real things that they've done with jimmy fallon okay final question no this is not multiple choice I just need an answer. So one of Warby Parker's worst selling and now discontinued products was also one of co-founder Neil Blumenthal's favorites. What was this product? It's a really tricky question. So it's not glasses? Uh, it's It's eyewear. Sleeping masks. No, good guess though. This one really would benefit from A, B, C, D. Yeah, I thought uh, about that and it would be too obvious. Uh, uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'll give you a couple more seconds. No. I don't know. Single lens. Monocle. A monocle. No yes. way. Yes. The monocle. It's, so in their original. How come nobody bought this? <laughs> That's so obvious. So in the, because it was so expensive one was 100 <laughs> but then you needed two and then everybody was like no no 45 dollars <laughs> for a for, a, for a one one thing yeah it was a monocle and it's named after colonel mustard from cluedo it was called the colonel um and they when they la- launched their original range i think it was like 25 different frame designs that they had the monocle in there and they knew it wasn't going to be a seller but there was something about it as a kind of quirky, interesting thing that kind of ties a little bit into their sort of heritage look and feel that they thought was interesting, right? Um, rather than having some novelty thing, and I guess it is a novelty, 
it was it was kind of harking back to that kind of classic eyewear like piece. Really interesting. Um, That's exactly my. <laughs> maybe you <laughs> need to get them to bring it back. Um, <laughs> and they actually had someone draw out a whole bunch of cartoons about this monocle hanging around New York and things like that. So yeah, it was a little bit of an activation um, early doors, but yeah, unsurprisingly, not a big seller. But um, I, I kind of smart move. Uh, a real favourite of one of the founders because of where it positioned them and that kind of quirky spirit um, that they like to have. That's it. Short quiz today. <laughs> Ready some, Let's some numbers? Let's get into the numbers. Over to you, Alan. As always, first, we're going to try to guess how big Warby Parker is in terms of their revenue. Um, I know that Franz probably came across the revenue numbers, but what he didn't come across is who, like it's a guessing game, so who the other company is, and it's not gonna be that easy. So, Tom, Franz, who is bigger? Which company is bigger? Warby Parker or Yelp? Mm. Yelp. Oh, I mean, Yelp is massive, but God, I don't know how much that business model is really doing numbers these days. I'm going to go with Warby Parker. And why, why did you go with uh, Yelp, France? Market size. Market size. Okay. You are correct. So Yelp has 1.1 billion in revenue. So that yeah. gives you some reference now. It's less than that. Next is Warby Parker or Eventbrite so the ticketing website mm. bigger that's you want to go first yeah Tom? god I, 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 I never perform too well in these ones I'm happy to go <laughs> first <laughs> I always uh, anchor in the wrong areas um, Eventbrite take a percentage of ticket sales is that how their model works I shouldn't be able to ask questions. I'm not sure either. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Eventbrite. (laughs) (laughs) Eventbrite? Yeah. Okay. And your friends? Same. Eventbrite? I think Eventbrite is big. Warby Parker. Damn it. Really? Eventbrite has 200 million in revenue. Wow. Unless my data is wrong. Eventbrite. Mm. And last one, Warby Parker or Groupon. So the coupon website, coupon service. Oh man, isn't Groupon just dead? <laughs> I'm going to go Warby Parker, see if I can get three out of three wrong. France? France? No, yeah. I follow Tom. So both of you said Warby Parker? Mm. Yeah. It's actually Groupon, but just by a million. Oh, and that's all 2022 data. But this is like, basically Warby Parker and Groupon are of the same... Uh, size in terms of the annual revenue mm. um, so this means yeah Warby Parker's annual revenue in 2022 was around 600 million it was actually 598 uh, million all of these are dollars obviously and now okay so we have a big disruptor Warby Parker they're gonna come into the market and they're gonna disrupt Luxottica or now called Essilor Luxottica do you want to guess how big <laughs> Essilor Luxottica is in terms of the revenue? May I calculate stuff? I mean, you can, of course. I can also just tell you. If you but if you want to play the game, Franz, you can calculate. I want to say 
more than 10x. More than 10x. That would make it uh, 6 billion. Oh, I'm going to go higher than that. Are they? It's because Lululemon, though. I'm sure we'll get onto that question. Um, I'm going to go 20 billion. Very close, Tom. 26 billion in revenue. 26? Yes. Big bits. But now another question. So, again, Warby Parker came into the market in 2010 and they were like, we will disrupt Luxottica. So, by this rationale, 26 should have been like the minimum. So, basically, in other ways, let's put it this way. What was Warby, no, what was uh, Luxottica's revenue in 2010? So I'm trying to see if, I was trying to see if, was it declining or was it growing? You know, mm-hmm. did Warby Parker actually disrupt Luxottica? But in 2010, Luxottica's revenue was 5 billion. So they grew exponentially in the last 10 years. Yes, there was a merger with Essilor, yeah. so that does help a lot. But still, you can see that it was a growing market in itself, the eyewear industry. So yeah. there was no disruption as such happening. It was just both brands growing at the same time. Mm. Yep. That's an interesting story also. When you have startups entering the space, like, hey, we will disrupt this uh, industry sometimes there's no disruption sometimes there's just like piggybacking on what exists and you playing the robin hood when another company is like the evil the evil yeah the sheriff of night was the sheriff of night the bad guy i think he probably was <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but now we come to the saddest part of the story which is profitability <laughs> so yes Bobby parker uh, did make 600 million in revenue, but they also made 100 million in loss. Yikes. Yeah, so that's that's pretty bad, you know, that's 20%. In other words, every time you order glasses from Warby Parker, and if you, let's say, you buy Warby Parker's for 100 US dollars, actually $20 are paid by investors. <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? Have you actually? Yeah. There has been this like. Thank you. Exactly, exactly. Uh, there on Twitter, there is there has been this trend a few years back where people were buying stuff that they thought couldn't be profitable without investors, and they just took a picture and so like, and they wrote, "Thank you, investors." Basically, like, mm. "Thank you for subsidizing <laughs> us with this product." So yeah, mm. currently it doesn't look that great. But I also had to look at the trend. So in their profitability, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? However, with the recent Corona um, um, epidemic, it's a bit hard to know that. So what I did dig up is that profitability or loss was actually 13% in 2020. So that was 55 million loss over 100 million in revenue, sorry, 400 million. And it was 27% loss in 2021 and then 20% loss in 2022 so you can see it's all over the place but the first quarter of 2023 so because we are in June of 2023 we can only look at the first quarter results uh, it looks a bit better it looks like the company is doing a bit better this year Uh, it looks like they will cut down 20% loss to 10% loss (laughs) So still loss. Isn't it even looking profitable this first quarter? No? Uh, from what I saw, no. I mean, okay. France, they're using this like adjusted EBITDA uh, mm-hmm. words. 
and adjust the DB that just means we will adjust this ratio to make it look as profitable but essentially as long as until it's profitable yeah. we'll adjust it as, as <laughs> until it's profitable so every company is adjusted EBITDA is profitable but in reality it's um, from what I've seen no um, and this is primarily driven by I'm quoting here reducing marketing costs lower stock based compensation and adjustments to our cost structure made in last year so these are yeah. the main reasons why it looks a bit better. Um, but their gross margins, so gross margins in this, so this is how you look at, is what, where's the problem? Okay, we're not profitable, but is it because we have two, is our product not profitable or is just the way we run the business not profitable? And the way to look at this is something called gross margin. So gross margin is basically how profitable a product is. So we look at the revenue from product minus all the costs associated with making and selling a product. And in this case, it's 55%, which is really good. Uh, compared to in the last episode, we talked about Sonos and that had 40 to 45% gross profit margin. And this is again, mm. 55%. By the way, Luxotica, 64% mm. and 2.2 billion in profit. Um, so it seems that the problem is essentially not on the way the product is positioned and the way the product is sold. It's more like with, it's more with just the way the business is run with the uh, other things around the business model. So which costs are not in the gross margin? It's marketing costs. Is it running stores or is this in the? Well, this is in. Uh, it depends on the accounting standards and how you want to make it look. But I would say that in this case, it should be. Mm. inventory and so on yeah factory and so on um, good so for the last kicker um, Bobby Parker has gone uh, did go public recently uh, so we want to see again how much money it raised and what is the current market cap in other words market cap is how much the company is worth it's multiplying all the stocks with the current stock price so in total, the company raised more than 500 million, to be exact, 535 million dollars. And the last round was, I believe, in 2020, uh, 245 million uh, round at three billion valuation. Mm. So then, when the company went public uh, in 2021, in October, uh, it actually was valued around six billion. And at the moment, as of today, June 12th, 2023, it's worth 1.3 billion. Ouch. Uh, just a reminder, Sonos, a profitable company, was uh, the last time we looked, so in the last episode, it was worth 2 billion. So yeah, it's like the stock price just is tanking. It actually, this year, it just went down by 30 or 40%. So it's, mm. it's, it's in a huge decline. And when you have a public company, that's where the problems start. Mm. You know, you can't really raise more money. You can't go to banks because you're usually companies then, or sometimes the companies they can take a bank loan against their stocks. But if your stock is tanking, you can't do this either. So uh, unless they can turn this around, Warby Parker could be acquired by none other than Oh no. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Luxottica. Yeah. Yeah. Almost 80% of valuation loss since IPO. That's a tough saying. That's, yeah. It is. Mm. So going back to the beginning of, like we said, we're going to look at great products that design community loves. Where we park is definitely one of those. But when you go into the weeds of the business side, it doesn't look that impressive anymore. However, they still have time to turn around. Uh, it's just, it's a race against the clock now because once you lose 80% of your value as a company, it's really hard to gain trust from investors. But yeah, mm. let's see. Indeed, let's see. An interesting thing, we, we, we are talking about brands that designers love. And I think there's a few factors that make us love these uh, love these brands and I think with Warby Parker it actually um, touches on quite a few it, it might be the user experience it might be uh, the design quality it might be the business model it might be the technology I think they're one of those rare ones that actually does all of those things and that that's what makes it kind of fascinating um, wonder if there's anything they're gonna do new in the technology space to try and um, innovate things to try and improve their position because they they have done some good stuff as far as like being able to do a sort of rudimentary online eye test and the whole you know trying on glasses virtually which is which is interesting stuff but i guess there's there's only so much um you can do to franz's point earlier about innovation in this area but yeah they are they are an interesting company for for all of those reasons and yeah hopefully they they pick things up Mm. Which is our last section. Mm, indeed. So at this point, we've kind of heard all about the brand positioning, the numbers and everything. And we think, okay, are we are we bullish or bearish? Are we, are we buying or selling um, Warby Parker? Um, so it'd be good to... to uh, I don't know if this is going to end up being three out of three um, based on our last two episodes. But maybe, Franz, we could go over to you first and maybe talk a bit about the how you're feeling, maybe the threats and the opportunities for, for Warby Parker, uh, and then how you're feeling, yeah. whether it's a buy or sell or hold for you. I think, so these, this last section always includes like threats and what they might be able to do in future. And for me, this was a little bit of a disappointing section to research because all the threats that I was able to think about and also find um, is very much related to any other comparable company, right? Obviously, if you have a hardware company, it's about um, supply chain. If it's a fashion company, it's always about similar to patent infringement, like... um, stealing designs or being uh, sued in this uh, in this uh, area obviously this balance between profitability and their brick and mortar stores not sure how big of a problem this is for them with uh, as we said small rather small stores with high um, sales per square feet uh, but again it's the it's the profitability issue that they need to work on obviously um, I thought that I, when I researched the numbers that they did turn around this year, um, but if they are still not profitable after uh, pandemic has ended and after stores are up and running again and three years after IPO, uh, I think that's the, the biggest thing that they, need to, that they need to work on getting their at least breaking even and at least not having losses anymore. 
And then I think if one can trust, I think it's a buy. Okay. Because share price is crazy low, like 80% below. I mean, obviously every share can go to zero, right? Every company can go bust. But if there is signs of they will turn it around and they will get profitable, I think this stock is an interesting buy option. This is not financial advice. <laughs> Worth disclaiming, is. but um, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is just for informational and entertainment purposes only. <laughs> only entertainment purposes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Wasn't sure you'd get there, friends, but yeah. Um, some interesting points there yeah. around. around and just to, um, obviously, one thing that they haven't been doing is a lot of internationalization, mm. right? US and Canada. Yeah, there is other markets to go. For real. Yeah, lots of opportunities still out there. Alan, how about you? Yeah, so France just took my opportunity uh, point. But in terms of the threats, um, the interesting ones, it's also like VR industry. So if just recently Apple, uh, Apple what Apple? Apple <laughs> launched the Vision Pro. And um, it's interesting how this will affect the eyewear industry. So if people wear this, and obviously right now it's just an experiment by one company, but if it becomes a mainstream, where people use this more and more, does that mean that, as far as I understand, this these devices can't be wore wear with glasses in? So then uh, you may just need to buy the lenses for the for the frame, uh, sorry for the VR headset, and this is more of an opportunity for the lens manufacturers than for the just frame manufacturers so in a way it's a threat because i wouldn't i wouldn't say this is the biggest um core competency of borby parker that's probably where tice and even luxotica could better play than warby parker then i think there's more and more people just getting uh, laser surgeries lasik um so that's a big threat to the whole industry uh, especially for the prescription glasses um then we have the remote work which I think it just affects you just putting less, you know, um, emphasis on your look and maybe having different glasses for different occasions or whatever. Um, it could be another threat. So I think there's a lot of forces that go against. Uh, did you want to say something, Tom? About, uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, speak for yourself, Alan. You know, <laughs> you're all looking on point on camera. So, yeah. <laughs> It's above the fold, below the folds. <laughs> oh, God. That's the thing. No, I mean, opportunities-wise, yeah, I think it's the same thing as Frontset, which is they've only been in Canada and US, mm. so there's still a lot to explore here. So this could be a much bigger business, but I think it's smart from their side to just focus on domestic market until they figure out the profitability. But once they do, they have a blueprint for how to just enter market after market after market. So, um, and in terms of my verdict, uh, I, I'm not buying. I don't like gambling, and rather buy businesses that are stable. So it's also like my my approach to to buying that's that's different here. But I do agree with France. This is an interesting buy opportunity. Again, this is not investment advice. Just just which is more like just fun exercise for us mm. and but yeah i personally would not be buying 
No. It's, a, it's another one of those for me that I came in going, damn, yeah, looks like great business. Like, why wouldn't I want in on that? And then you dig into the numbers and the opportunity and it starts to feel a little bit more, bit more nervy. I mean, you know what's funny, though? Like, there's so many people who go and pick stocks and they, hey, I'm going to buy this and then I'm going to buy that. And they never do even this basic thing we've done. Mm. So all of us spent a couple of hours on research for this episode and if you find a lot of the stuff and then the way i see some of the colleagues buying these stocks is just like oh i like the product i'm gonna buy this stock nice brand <laughs> <laughs> i like the brand so i'm gonna buy this stock like hmm, i think this is not the best way to invest no no real yeah this is not investment yeah this advice. is not this is yeah this is investment advice do your research um it's also a fascinating way to really explore. Um, we've said this many times before that as designers, on the, on the surface, a business model just looks absolutely killer and you think, God, that must be such a successful business. We love it. Design's great, all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, you need to dig a little deeper and it's a great way to learn about um, the twists and turns of, of growing a business uh, of this kind of scale and where it can take you and the potential pitfalls and threats and everything. So, yeah, really useful exercise. And I always find it fascinating starting on the road to researching these. So um, Warby Park has been a particularly interesting one. Um, I did, on, on the kind of threats piece, I, I don't know, I might just be naive here, um, but for me, it's like, what other, what, what could stop Luxottica from starting their own Warby Parker competitor? It's not like they would be, I guess you could say they'd be cannibalizing on their kind of high end sales, but so many of these brands that they own, people have no idea that they're all owned by one brand. So if they were to launch a more budget friendly DTC Warby Parker copy, um, I, I'm not, they've got all the infrastructure there. To, to do something like that so that that feels like a big threat but you, you someone already mentioned that they could just go down the acquisition road instead um if that was of interest but they could destroy warby parker probably if they decided to mm. to do that that's an interesting thing because so alan remind us again of the revenue of uh, luxotica 26 billion dollars in 2022 yeah now imagine going to one of the top management people and saying, hey, I want to found a direct-to-consumer brand for where we sell glasses for 100 euros a pair, $100 a pair. And then they're like, yeah, what can we expect? And you're like, yeah, there is one industry-dominant player who does exactly that, and they have been in business since 2010, and they are having a... Revenue of 600 million. Yeah, be like, eh. And then you're like... Please do, sh shut the doors from the outside. <laughs> shut the door from the outside and work on our high-margin products because that's what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. And we're not fiddling around with these things. Mm. So just a little other way of using this, um, what we have just discussed, right? So if you are on the other side of this story, Luxotica, and you're a designer for their um, for their in their business that's an interesting fact to know right in which brand do you work what's the revenue there what are you contributing mm. to the business what ideas have a lever um, what competitors do you have to be concerned about who are you designing against uh, so that already helps you knowing this market and knowing your own revenue and knowing yeah the sizes of the businesses within this company 
um, to yeah get ideas across or even chase the right ideas. And this is what we say all the time. Is Strategy is making trade-offs, right? And deciding not what not to invest in and go after. And we say that so often. Yeah. Don't try and do everything. I guess Logotica, with their scale, it just feels like they could. Um, but whether they should, probably not. Um, don't need mm. to, certainly. I doubt, I don't know, know that they'd be losing much sleep over Warby Parker at the moment. And I would... I don't know, but I would assume they also have a budget brand. The only thing that they don't have is this one brand that's... So I think they have budget mm. products, but what they're not having is this one brand that speaks like mm. Morby Parker saying, hey, we are the ones, because that's just one portfolio item for them. Yeah. I hadn't considered also... I watched an interview with the founders recently and they were talking about the, the size of the market growing so much over the next decade or so. Something like 50% of people needing glasses in the next 20 years, and that's much... That's going up, I guess, lifestyle, screen work, all that kind of stuff. But then to your point, Alan, that that probably is taking... That's not just... They weren't just talking about the US market there and actually the, the countries that can afford Warby Parker, you know, alternatives, um, things like laser eye surgery and things like that might be more, become more prevalent, cheaper. Um, and actually the places where the eye care is, is needed and maybe is, is growing in need is, is maybe not the markets for, for Warby Parker. Um, so yeah, interesting. I think I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not buying either. <laughs> um, is that the only one? Is that three out of three episodes so far where we've we've come away not? No, I have a buy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's so cheap at the moment. You're like, so oh, this is one out of nine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Have we got anything else to um, wrap up with? Any any more thoughts on Warby Parker? No. In which case, send me sunglasses. My Ray-Bans oh, are gone. Oh, your Ray-Bans are gone. Damn. What, well, I'm sure Luxottica can sort you out with another brand from their portfolio yeah. in France. Especially after hearing this glowing, glowing podcast. You yeah. should just send them this instead of your money. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm always losing sunglasses. I never spend more than 40 quid on them just because, yeah, they've been left on subways. And Maybe that's stuff. an opportunity. Why don't they create glasses that you never lose? That you never, like... You know. That would not be in their, their best interests, I don't think. <laughs> okay, so, I'm, so here we're going somewhere. I'm telling you a story about an Austrian glass manufacturer. Yeah. They're called um, Glorify, and they're made out of material that doesn't break. Right. So lenses and frame. So you can sit on them, you can twist and stomp on them, they will not break. And they had this awesome appearance on this Austrian version of Shark Tank and one of the investors said so what's your problem why aren't you growing and they said our glasses don't break <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so that's to the point of let's make glasses that are not mm, lost yeah um, yeah yeah so that was a, a fun was one for me to watch yeah. uh, because they had stable revenue numbers, mm. awesome products, everybody loved them. So then comes the question, why are you not <laughs> growing? And they said, 
Nobody repurchases. Our own USP. Nobody repurchases because they're not breaking. Yeah. Oh, God. We said that about Sinos last week, didn't we, where they make such robust products that they were struggling with how do we keep people buying. But, um, yeah. Cool. Well, good luck with your um, glasses hunt, Franz. Bring, I brought my sunglasses for the episode. You, you couldn't, obviously. Alan already has his. So ne- next episode, let's see what you end up replacing them with. Yes. Cool. Research, research purchase, Franz. Indeed. It's always a good excuse. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Nice Thanks, Franz. I think that's the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to whomever is listening until now, you obviously love business topics, especially intertwined with design uh, in the design world. So you may also enjoy our mini MBA, which is an email course, a free email course, where over the course of seven days, you receive seven emails. Uh, and then in those you kind of get to learn a few business concepts that are relevant to the work of designers so if that is interesting to you head over to d.mba slash mini mba so d.mba slash mini mba and with this we are definitely concluding this episode and see you in the next one in another teardown see you bye 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 bye